Good evening, church family. Good evening. I love the sound of all of those happy greetings. I hate to interrupt that. It sounds wonderful. Um, thank you all for bringing the joy um, and the peace into this place. Um, it's such an honor, as always, to be here gathered for another night of Bible study. Before we dive into the Word of God, we always want to take a moment to acknowledge that there may be any first-time folks here. If this is your first time joining us on a Tuesday night, would you just wave a hand so we can celebrate and acknowledge you? Amen. Welcome. God bless you. God bless you. Welcome to our Tuesday night Bible study, to you and to all of you and those who are tuning in online. It's always a joy to come together for this time of enrichment where we can dive a little bit deeper into some of those passages that we've been exploring on Sundays in our own devotional time. Uh, we always believe that Bible study is not our opportunity to tell you what to think, but it's our time to ask some of those probing questions that will help us all to think a little bit deeper and to understand more of what God may have for us. This is just the launching pad. We don't answer all of the questions here, but we do attempt um, to raise some of those issues and things that we've been struggling with. As always, there are microphones in each aisle. We encourage you that if you have a question or comment or something to add to this conversation and this dialogue, to please get up and use one of the microphones so that way our entire community here and our online community can hear what you are saying. Um, I'm one of those people who loves to have dialogue on Tuesday night, so this is not our chance to preach to you. This is our chance to be in dialogue and in conversation, so please feel free to use that microphone. All throughout the month of January, we were in a series called what? Teach us how to pray. Teach us how to pray. January's focus was on the power of prayer and how we can more effectively utilize prayer in our lives and the way that prayer can transform our lives and the world around us. We are going to conclude that series tonight. I know that it's February, but we left off before we had praying with the pastor. We left off with just a little bit of the Lord's Prayer uncovered and unfinished. So tonight, we are going to finish covering the Lord's Prayer. And then for the rest of February, our plan beginning next week is to get us prepared and geared up for our Seek 2020 fast. How many of you people are excited about Seek 2020? I know I am. I know I gained all the weight that I lost in Seek 2019. It's all back, so I'm ready for Seek 2020 so we can, we can get, get these abs flat again. Praise the Lord. Uh, but no, we're really excited about what our fast did in our church and our own individual lives um, did for us as a community. So we're, we're excited to have Reverend Mark Laverin and our culinary team are going to be up here for the next two weeks leading us in Bible study, talking about the importance of fasting and showing us a little bit how to do it and giving us some recipes and some insider clues. So you don't want to miss these next two weeks of Bible study as we prepare ourselves for the journey that lies ahead of us in SEEK. Um, and then one final note of preparation before we go into the Word of God tonight. I, as we close this season and this series on prayer, I feel that it's so important to send a reminder just to ask all of us to lift up our church family in prayer. It seems that in this past week, there's been a really high amount of death and loss within our church family. And so I just want to ask each of you to remember to lift up our family in prayer, those who are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, those who have lost loved ones. It's a difficult journey. And even if they didn't lose somebody this week, we know that it's a, grief is a long journey that extends far beyond the funeral, far beyond that period of emotion. Even today, I, I picked up my phone this morning and I got ready to text one of my mentors happy birthday and it didn't hit me till after I had sent the text that he wouldn't get this text anymore. Um, we lost him in April. And so 
grief stays with us for a while, and so I want us always to remember to keep our family members in prayer because that's one of our, our greatest duties that we have in life. With that in mind, let's open our Bibles. We're going to Matthew 6. You know that we've been in this series, Teach Us How to Pray, looking at the Lord's Prayer. I will have you out of here in time to see your president's prayerfully last State of the Union address. <laughs> prayerfully. Uh, <laughs> Pray prayerfully. Matthew chapter 6, we've been in our series, Teach Us How to Pray. Thank you all so much. Um, remember, we said that prayer simply is our ordinary speech of humans reaching out to God. It is us having a conversation with God, as James Washington used to say. It's our chance to simply talk to God um, and to let out all of our raw feelings, our emotions, our honesty, and our vulnerability to lay out grief and concern. Prayer is simply ordinary speech, but we, when we turn our ordinary speech over into the hands of an extraordinary God, amazing things begin to happen. Um, and so prayer is as old as humanity itself, and prayer takes many forms. Sometimes it's done in song, sometimes it's done in speech, sometimes it's just done in the posture in which we pray. Um, we had a, a workshop on this while I was in seminary in New York. Somebody told us about the importance of just praying in different physical postures, that there's something beautiful that happens when I pray standing just like this, but there's also something that happens when I kneel in prayer, right? Or when, you know, um, the old saints would do, they used to lay prostrate at the altar. We don't do that a lot here at Alpha Tree, but I miss, the, there's something powerful when we pray in these different settings and these different forms. So prayer has many forms that we take into consideration. And the Lord's Prayer in particular um, that we, many of us have recited in our tradition appears two times in Scripture. One form shows up in Luke chapter 11. That's part of a larger narrative where the disciples observe Jesus praying, and so they ask Jesus, um, teach us how to pray as John taught his disciples. And in the other example of the Lord's Prayer, the one that we've mainly been focusing on, comes in Matthew chapter six, um, which comes right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, this much larger body of the teachings of Jesus. Um, and Jesus starts up this uh, lesson by saying, when you pray, don't do this, and then he says, do this, and that's when we get the Lord's Prayer that many of us are so familiar with. So it's those two prayers in Scripture. Um, we'll focus on this, this longer form prayer that we receive in Matthew chapter 6. After this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, in earth as it is in heaven. Dr. Judy went over that portion of the prayer, and then we were led in this next portion by Minister Barbara, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then finally, we will deal with this line tonight and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, many of you all know that for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever does not appear right in, in your scriptures. We'll talk about that really briefly, how that doxology got into this prayer and our common ritual at the end of our lesson on tonight. But we're gonna focus on the lead us not into temptation, um, but deliver us from evil. It is this odd paradox that we find, right, that even though, even our Lord knows that this prayer may not be fully answered in the way that he expects it to be answered, so he provides this kind of safety net for us, right? Don't you hear it? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's this odd conundrum that has really kind of stumbled a lot of us who look at it closely. We're going to try to explore that tonight um, and get some clarity on it. 
Of course, always to do that, we review this context of the Lord's Prayer that it exists in Matthew. Whenever we're looking at Scripture, we can never afford to ignore the context in which it's delivered, right? What is said before and after? What um, is the writer, what's the audience of the writer, right? What's the writer trying to do and to prove? So as we said, this Lord's Prayer that shows up in Matthew exists in the Sermon on the Mount. And notice what's so peculiar and striking is that you know the Lord's Prayer is special and it, make, and it means something because Matthew intentionally places the Lord's Prayer centrally within this Sermon on the Mount, right? It is smack dab in the center. It's preceded by 116 verses. There's 114 verses that come after it, right? So that means if you're looking at something right in the middle, that means that there was intentionality behind that um, and that Matthew is up to doing something really special. We see the prayer open with these three invocations, Um, Three utterances about God. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And then after that, we have three requests for human needs. So the prayer is not only intentionally placed, but it's also symmetric in nature. Three invocations, three requests for human need. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. And then do not bring us into the time of trial or lead us not into temptation. So we have a centrally placed prayer and a prayer that is symmetrically balanced. We also learn that the prayer is submissive. It's, 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 I'm sorry, it's not submissive. It's subversive and risky. Um, that when we acknowledge um, God's name as being that name above anything else, right, um, that we're acknowledging God's power, and that is subversive, that is risky. It's countercultural. It's also counter to our will and our desires, right, that that's something beautiful about prayer. Many of you us know that we spend a lot of time as children, right, praying and asking God for things, right? Prayer, when we start out in our infancy stages of our faith, prayer is a wish list. God, do this, give me that, make this happen, right? And then what? As we grow in our faith, it becomes God, your will. God, have your way. God, I say yes, right? And so the Lord's Prayer already gives us this kind of roadmap of prayer being counter to our will and also accepting of things that are outside of our control, Right? That prayer is not just a matter of what I ask for, but I don't dictate to God, God, how to handle this. Um, but prayer, part of, my, part of what makes prayer so powerful, it's me surrendering to God. I'm saying, God, I'm, I'm letting you guide my journey, guide this ship in this moment. Um, and prayer acknowledges God's holiness and, God, and our neediness. I think this is what Minister Barber talked about. So, right, we acknowledge how great and mighty God is, and then we acknowledge how much in need we are, right? And we keep that balance of power in mind that reminds us of kind of how we should focus our minds and our hearts as we enter this moment of prayer. Reminds us of our responsibility and our need for God, that without God, we can do nothing, and that's part of the reason, the impetus that drives us into these moments of prayer. It's also important for us as we think about prayer to pay attention to what is being taught in the material that surrounds the Lord's Prayer, right? So when we li- we lifting this one passage up, Matthew 6, 9 to 13, but as we said, 114 verses before, 116 some after. So it's important for us to think about what are some of these related teachings that we also should keep in mind that illuminate our understanding of the prayer itself. So one of those things that you'll notice Jesus does, and I invite you to go home and read the entirety of the um, Sermon on the Mount, it's most of chapters, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. If you haven't gone back to that material, it's super important. It's a quick read and um, it's foundational to a lot of our Christian teaching. But one of the themes that you'll notice in, in that Sermon on the Mount material is a repudiation of kind of the pious showboating or hypocrisy. 
So Jesus kind of says, beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen um, because they have no reward for you. Your reward comes from your Father in heaven. So Jesus says, hey, some of our our religious ritual is not supposed to be done in this show-off manner because why are you showing off for people who don't have a reward to give you? Right? We do what we do. We do so much, so much of our ritual in private because we're doing it for an audience of God right? and not for an audience of the people around us. Another one of those teachings that illuminates the Lord's Prayer is this imperative of communal reconciliation. Uh, this is a big one that you know, we joke about often, but really it would transform the way we do church if we took it seriously. Uh, what, who, who knows what I'm talking about when Jesus talks about communal reconciliation? Anybody remember? Comes up a few times in scripture, Dr. Garrett. Oh yeah, now she's got <laughs> Nobody wants to answer the question because they don't want to give up. Uh, we can pass the mic, pass the mic. Can we do that? Oh, there we go. Thank you so much. Is this when you have to go to your neighbor or anybody that has ought against you first? Mm-hmm. That's exactly it. Go to your neighbor, brother or sister, as some translations read. So Jesus is saying, yeah, celebrate her. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> I wish I had prizes, you know. What was it, last Sunday I was teaching in Higher Ground in Teen Church, I had prizes. I got carried away giving out all the goodies. But um, yes, that's exactly it. Jesus is saying, before you bring your gift to the altar, before you bring your sacrifice, he says, if you, if you have an ought with your brother or sister, go to them and reconcile first and then come and bring your gift. Um, That's what we talk about when we say communal reconciliation, that we ought to work through our forgiveness and our church drama and our beef and our petty disputes. All of that we should work through before we bring our gift. Um, I think we hear Paul say it again before we come to the communion table, that we ought to deal with these grievances and these oughts against each other. Um, That's a huge thing to think about. What would it mean if before I prayed about a situation involving me and some other person, I would work on reconciling before I felt I was fully ready to come to prayer, full earnest prayer in God, right? That reconciliation is this huge prerequisite that we often overlook. And I know it's tough. I know it's tough. There's a whole series on our YouTube channel about forgiveness from Pastor Wesley. I think it's like a six-part series. Um, We're not going to deal with all of that tonight, but the point is here, forgiveness and reconciliation is so important. And Jesus emphasizes it time and time again, and he even calls it a prerequisite, um, something that we should do and handle and take care of before we go any further in our practice. And also, um, one of the teachings that also Jesus gives us is this desire for peace that issues from the law's fulfillment. Jesus says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I've come to fulfill them, for not one letter will pass until all is accomplished. Um, That some of what is going on um, is Jesus helping us to understand that he's come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Yes, can I get you to come to the mic? Yes, I would really appreciate it, and I know we got some folk online who would... Of course, of course. I'm not used to talking into a microphone. <laughs> I was just wondering, you were talking about reconciliation, and it's a lot easier said than done. Yeah. So I personally struggle with learning how to forgive someone that I'm still angry with or like getting to that point where I can forgive them because to be honest, I can sit here and say, oh, I do forgive you, but deep down, being able to do that and 
how do you do that? I don't know if you can tell me that, but how do you get there? Gotcha. So how many of us struggle with our sister? We deal with the same thing. All right, just to know you're not alone, right? Um, I got my hand up. I put my foot up if I could. Um, that is something that all of us struggle with, so thank you for your honesty and for sharing that. Um, forgiveness is a process and a journey, and you will not necessarily get there immediately. I don't think that's God's expectation for any of us. What I do feel that when, God, when we hear that scripture of go and, and be reconciled with your brother or sister, I think that's a, a commission to start the process and not to finish the healing. Right, So I don't believe that God expects us to be fully recovered. Some of us have been wounded deeply by folk. And also the other note it's important to remember is that forgiving someone does not necessarily mean fully getting over it or being in full relationship again, right? So forgiveness does not always equate to us restoring the relationship back to what it used to be. Because sometimes relationship will never go back to what it is before you hurt me. Sometimes we need a creative and healthy distance between us now that that has happened. But it's important for our own selves and our own hearts and our interior work to say, I'm not going to hold on to this grief and this bitterness or to let it affect or limit my future um, because I'm holding on to that. So I would say it's really our task is to kind of start the process. But thank you so much for sharing that. So that's some of those surrounding context teachings. I think those are important for us to keep in mind that the Sermon on the Mount, we can't just lift the, lift the Lord's Prayer up in singularity. We have to consider all that Jesus is teaching um, as we look at this prayer. So with that in mind, Hello, let's sir. come to, oh, a question. Thank you so much. I'm sorry. Um, no, no, no. In response to her uh, forgiveness, I know I heard a preacher say one time, and I don't know how Alfred Street believes, but I know I heard a preacher say one time that forgiveness really helps you, and it really heals you. And when we don't have forgiveness, we're hurting, but the person who has made us feel uncomfortable, has moved on and they're still being blessed. And so when I think that I want my blessings, all of them, <laughs> that then it helps me say, Lord, help me to get rid of this ill will or this bad feeling. Because sometimes forgiveness doesn't even mean that you want anything bad to happen to that person. You just really don't want to be around them. Yeah, and help me get rid of that, that feeling so that I can get all my blessings. And uh, that's, that's something that helps me. Amen. Thank you for that, yes. Yes, my sister. Also, as an advocate for domestic violence and sexual assault, you cannot always reconcile. You can forgive, but sometimes due to the situation, safety prevents you from recon reconciliation. So in some cases, all you can do is forgive, but you can't be in that same atmosphere again or be around that person again. Yeah, and that's why we nuance what it always means to reconcile, right? It definitely depends on the situation. I would even say, right, if the text says be reconciled with your brother or sister, I would say in an instance like that, that person, I would not maybe consider brother or sister anymore, right? That there are points when if we're being, someone is violently offending and abusing us, right, that at what point does that change the definition of who is my neighbor? Right, and so that's why, yeah, we would, we would never tell someone, especially in those instances and so many others, um, that it's their calling to forgive. But for some of us, right, we know we have those level of hurts and offenses, and then also we have, right, our smaller, pettier ones, right? My cousin Jojo in them, right? <laughs> and so, yes, that point is so true and so accurate, but don't let us write off the little ones that we know we can reconcile and deal with 
within the next week, right, you know, under that excuse. You know, how, we know how we work. Come on, y'all. Let's, let's be honest, right? Uh, well, you know, I can't deal with that one, so, you know, I'm not, you know, let, deal with the small, low-hanging fruit first, right? God celebrates our little victories. Uh, amen. Let's get into this prayer. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, um, or some translations will say, and bring us not to the time of trial or testing, but rescue us from the evil one. Trial, test, temptation. Um, the Greek word is sometimes rendered in all three of those fashions throughout the New Testament. Um, lead us not into the time of trial, test, or temptation. Now we'll need some folks, more folks to come to the mic. How would you interpret, what do you say is the meaning of a trial, a test, or a temptation? How do, you, how do you, we define that? What does it mean to go through a trial? What does it mean to be tested? What does it mean to be tempted? What, is that, what does that mean to you? I got one, I'll need about two or three others to come and help us break down. I want to get a sense of the room. Um, a test in the trial is like, to me personally, is when God be like testing me, knowing that it may be something I know I'm not supposed to be doing, I'm still doing it, or either me being around something I know I don't need to be around, but me being strong enough to just walk away and not do it. Thank you. So that's one definitely example that we can relate to, right? So God is shifting behavior, right? Using test or trial to change, right? Who we spend our time around or to change habits or, or things, the ways in which we live. Uh, yes, Mel, and then we'll come back to this side. Okay. Um, in some instances, a test or a trial could be where God, where you have asked God to elevate you. So he gives you a test or a trial and hopes to refine you to elevate you. And prayerfully, you passed. <laughs> Amen, right? But a lot of us have experienced that, right? Test as preparation for something else that's coming, right? So that we go through a trial, right? And we sense that, that this is God kind of grooming us or giving us what we need in order to stand or walk in the next chapter or situation of our life. Yes. So for me personally, I reflect on the book of James about how it says that if we feel we're being tested or tried, it's never God that's doing it because God wouldn't do it. So then for me personally, especially right now in my life, I feel it's more so a testing of my faith and belief and um, <clears throat> kind of like what James says, a perfecting of faith. And I want to go back to this forgiveness thing because I think I like to think of it sometimes as a setup about the reconciliation or the situations that cause a need for reconciliation that, that, you know, if we flip it and look inwardly, sometimes either what role do we play or are we being too sensitive or not strong enough in our Christianity, the thicker skin that we can take these offenses and not have it impact our heart with respect to our Christianity. I like that, the strengthening of our faith, right? Kind of building up our own Christian muscle, right? Or our guard and our shield, our armor. Um, and yes, we're jumping ahead in my lesson a little bit. We're gonna talk about that James passage because on surface that does seem to conflict with the language we hear um, in our Lord's Prayer. So we're gonna come back to that. Thank you for bringing up uh, Shakita. 
Yes, uh, trial to me means something that God has just dropped in your life unexpectedly. And it's like what you're going to do, to the right or to the left. And it's up to you to search your heart. It's up to you to seek him. That's what he wants you to do. He said, now, you have a choice to go on your own merit or you're going to seek me. Mm. And then you go from there. Yeah. Trial is pushing us to the point where we have to decide, am I going with my own self or am I going with God? Right? What am I going, who am I going to rely on in this instance? Trial forces me to that position. Yes. Yes. Um, I just wanted to say that we keep saying that it's something that God has done, but sometimes it's not God doing it. It's other things, the other forces that are coming against us. And so that might be the trial or the test, but he wants us to seek him to deliver us from that evil and trust in him to guide us. And that goes back to the surrender piece. Yes. And that's the huge debate in this passage that we're going to get into tonight. Right? Is it God leading us into the temptation or is it something else? Right? Is it my own desire or greed or is, it, or is God doing this? Right? There, there's two different ways to look at this. Right? Um, and so we're going to dig deeper because that's kind of the big debate um, in this passage. But yes, my brother, we'll take one last definition of test, test yeah, trial, or temptation. Yeah, sure. I was just going to say building on something that, that someone said before. Sometimes it's you've not experienced something before, but just referring to your earlier uh, kind of like opening around death, you, 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 you lose someone. Um, you, you move through it then it happens again. Well, you refer back to what happened, and you know if you got through that, you'll get through this trial as well. So it's, it's building on these unexpected situations that happen, just referring back and knowing you got through that, you'll continue to get through things. That's great, right? Trials or tests can pull on our memory, right? Allow us to recall ways in which God has operated or moved in our lives before, right? And, and even that, that's a strengthening faith in itself. So that's different ways, right? It's important for us to see the different ways that trials and tests and temptations show up, right? So we could argue that sometimes they're neutral, right? It could be, just be something as simple as a clinical trial or experiment, right? We don't feel good or bad about that, but, right? Sometimes a lot of us have articulated this something positive, right? That's how most of us seem to have interpreted trials or tests and temptation. That is a discovery of somebody's strength or effectiveness, right? That we are somehow through these difficult circumstances improved or made better. And then another way to interpret it is something negative, right? An academic examination, a pop quiz right now. You know, if I gave one out, you all would be like, this is, this is not the type of test we were looking forward to, right? Or trial legal action in court, right? That's not something that many of us would get excited about if we found out that was starting tomorrow. So there's different ways for us to interpret this. But generally, most often, and the reason why we, most of our definitions that you all gave, we have positive interpretations of tests and trials. That's what we generally see in the bulk of our scriptures, right? So I just have some examples that I've lifted up here. Um, one comes in Deuteronomy, right? Remember the long way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness in order to humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep God's commandments. So I feel like we definitely had somebody mention that, right? Testing what's in our heart, right? Searching our, ourselves for our desires, that that's a result that comes from trial, um, another example is Psalm 26, prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, uh, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in faithfulness to you. 
Prove me, O Lord. Search me, O Lord. Try me. Right? The psalmist is literally inviting God to try him, to, to prove him and test him. Um, that goes to Mel's point about preparing us for the next level. That sometimes that when we're in those situations where we know we want to get to this next place and station in our lives, we really invite or ask God to test us. Um, and another one comes from James. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but pure joy because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature, complete, lacking in nothing. Look at these beautiful results that come from this testing. And that testing there is the same Greek word that we see in our Lord's Prayer in Matthew. Um, we get out of that testing maturity and completion, um, and we realize that we lack nothing. Um, and then another example in 1 Peter 1. In this you rejoice, even if now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that though perishable is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. We talked about our faith being strengthened, right? And the way that gold is formed in the fire, God can also strengthen and form our faith in these moments of trial. But the most common one that we think about and that will kind of guide our conversation tonight when we think about our understanding of tests and trials comes in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, who all remembers what happens in Matthew chapter 4? Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus is tempted by Satan, right? And that chapter opens with this mysterious passage. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Um, this passage messes with a lot of our thinking, right? Because we have Jesus being led by the Spirit into an encounter with the devil, with Satan. Right, depending on how we, our, script, our Bibles will translate. This one is big for many of us. So that's why a lot of us view, right, it's God, this one who leads, leads us into trials, right, because the Holy Spirit is leading us into this testing moment, right? And this testing moment prepared Jesus. It made him better. This season of testing in, in Jesus' life after 40 days in the wilderness, it comes right at the beginning of his ministry, Right, so we have the birth narrative, we have the baptism of Jesus, and then in Matthew chapter four, before Jesus performs miracles, before he calls disciples, he is tempted in the wilderness. So that's why many of us understand temptation um, and trials as a moment of testing and preparation. It's getting us ready, because um, that's many, many of the ways that we've interpreted what God is doing, that God is testing and stretching and preparing Jesus. So um, he takes him up into the wilderness, um, he's famished after 40 days of fasting, and then he meets in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 3 the tempter, the pyrazo, right, is the Greek word that's used there, um, which is almost similar to the pyrosmos, the temptation that we see two chapters later in Matthew chapter 6. Um, so that's one of the typical ways that we see, we see this kind of overall positive interpretation of test and trial. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, it stretches me. Yes, I'm going to cry and struggle through some of this. But a lot of us have been formed in our thinking to think of overall a good and positive and healthy result comes out of this because through this experience, God is making me better. And yet, with that in mind, there are still have to come, right, some alternative interpretations of a test and trial, right? Because if in this prayer, Jesus says, and lead us not into temptation, Right? Then that opens up the door for us to think about, then why would we not want to be led into temptation? Yes, we've listed all the positive of it, 
right? But what may be some of the, the negative things? Why, why would we not, why would Jesus pray, tell his disciples to pray, lead us not into temptation? So let's look at three alternative interpretations. And different scholars are, um, and authors have argued over the years. First one is common, some of us have heard this before. Um, Jesus faces the ultimate trial so that we wouldn't have to, right? That Jesus went up to the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil, I, I, I don't have to do that, right? Um, that, that, and, and I know we say, oh, some of us laugh like that, no, 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 right? But there's really two schools of thought, right? So there's, there's an idea that says Jesus went through so much, right, and endured so much suffering, I don't, I don't have to do that, right? And then all of us have heard the, no, must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everybody and there's a cross for me, right? Those are two ends of the spectrum. And I would argue that all of us as Christians live with somewhere within that span. We're not all one way or the other, right? So oftentimes, right, I think there are seasons in our life, and, and most of us would say we're not trying to take on all the suffering that Jesus took on. Yep, all right, some of y'all like your job, you like your paycheck, right, you like your income. Even those of us, right, with titles, and stuff, we, you know, we're, we're not doing it the way that Jesus did, right? Uh, we're, we're not leaving home and walking out into the wilderness to be abandoned and rejected by friends and so-called disciples. Lots of us are not carrying on the full weight on the burden that Jesus carried on. There's, some of us would say there's only a few great martyrs for every generation, all right? But we know right deep in our heart, right on this other span, it's always still there. Must Jesus bear the cross alone? No, I've got a cross, right? But we rarely walk into the fullness of what that means. What would it really mean for me to sacrifice, right? And so I know why we laugh and we giggle when we saw that first one, Jesus faced the trials that I wouldn't have to. I, I know he's like, no, that's not, no. But the reality is we don't always fully grab onto all of what Jesus had to suffer and endure. Right, so that, that's why I listed that one first so that we could think about that. Jesus, um, and the second one, there's another argument that says the time of trial or testing refers to apocalyptic thought. What does apocalyptic thought mean? Thought about the end times, right? Yes, yeah, somebody said Revelation. Revelation is called the Apocalypse of John as this other title. Yes, yeah, so the other idea is that when Jesus is saying lead us not into temptation, he's talking about the ultimate end time, right? This, ult this time at the end where these extraordinary things and the power of evil will become so intensified, right? There's this idea that we'll have this final standoff between evil and the power of God, right? And that's, that's why we have some, this, this apocalyptic literature and that's what it comes from. Yes, if you don't mind going to the mic real quick. Don't mind going to the mic, we'll, answer the, we'll be glad to answer your question. <laughs> Um, do you think that like apocalyptic is like the end of the world and after humankind and you know like with big meteors coming down and all this stuff but also I really think that this is we're at some point in this apocalyptic time I don't know what anybody else thinks but with everything going on in the world and with, um, you know, the, the fires, with, like, all the racial stuff, with every, everything, like, all the discrimination between just people, all the hate, all the stuff going on in the news, with the stupid politics. Um, forgive me if anybody's, like, a politician. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I feel like, especially with the kids today, that the world's just going in the wrong direction, and there's 
more and more few and far between good people. So I really feel like we're either in the beginning of that apocalyptic time, because if you read the Revelations, I mean, there's parts of it that you can kind of be like, okay, well, this is happening now. Yeah. So I just wanted to see what... So me, Elijah, personally feels that no man knows the day or the hour, right? That's, that's the scripture that I hear and know. But I, I hear, and I, the only reason I say that is because I hear both sides of what you say, right? In the same way no man knows the day or the hour, that means um, I can't really predict or know or say, yes, with confidence that this is the end times. But also at the same time, yes, I do see those signs, right? And we do see these tragic, devastating things and we wonder why. That both falls under that umbrella, Right? To, to, me, to me, when I hear no man knows the day or the hour, that means, one, get ready in case it is, right? Because I do see all these terrible things going on around me, right? How do I right, get right with God before it's too late, right? Some of us grew up in the old school churches where they used to, you used to think that, you know, the rapture was coming tomorrow. Yeah. To, they, they scared some of us into that baptism pool, <laughs> right? You didn't want to get left behind, right? So, so yes, and, and part of that, there's so much truth in that, right? I do want to be right and be ready. All right, I don't want to be left here, and all y'all gone. <laughs> and also at the same time, I can't live my life in that type of fear, right? And there has to be some ultimate hope that keeps me grounded even as I see these signs and distress all around me, right? Um, so how do I stay grounded in that? And that's why I live in that kind of medium scripture. No one knows the day or the hour. I keep both of those in tension because um, I need both of them in order to kind of make my way through. Um, so, we, but we do notice that some scholars do feel that when Jesus is mentioning this, he's referring to the times of the apocalypse through the end times. And we know, and we've talked about this before, most of our New Testament writers, all of them, they, they thought the apocalypse was coming really soon, right? Yeah. Any of them would be shocked to know that we're here, right, in the year of our Lord 2020 yeah. in, in, in somebody's church, right? They, they thought the end times was coming, right? So... Um, that's why there's this argument that that's kind of what Jesus is referring to here in this passage. And then, as was stated earlier, another alternative interpretation, is, as somebody said earlier on this left side, is that temptation is a result of our kind of own desire, right, and, our, our, and not God's leading, right? And all of us can admit that in sometimes instances that is very true, right? The Holy Spirit did not lead you to eat that donut this morning, right, when you know you were supposed to have something else, right? <laughs> Sometimes the temptation of the trial of the test has nothing to do with what the Holy Spirit led you into, right? <laughs> okay. All right, thank you. I'm good to know I'm not the only one who's been getting convicted. We've got Seek 2020 coming. Thank you, Reverend Mark. <laughs> and so that's what we kind of see. Um, and my sister said it. She brought up the James uh, 1, 12 through 17 passage, that we're not tempted by God but we're tempted by our own desire, right? So that, that James does mention that and bring that up into conversation. Um, and we all know that to be true, that a lot of the things that we struggle and wrestle with is because we chose to walk into it. We chose to make that decision, right? We were not necessarily a victim in that instance. We were a volunteer, right? That every now and then, right, we we make some choices that lead us into these places, right? We, we fall into temptation. In fact, I think it was December 2017, Pope Francis made some controversy because he was really big into this interpretation. He, he said, I, he made an argument for the Catholic Church to no longer translate lead us not into temptation. He said, and do not let us fall into temptation, right? And that's, that's, that's the Pope. Um, so, you know, I'm not gonna argue with the Pope, but... Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> but you see, you see the, the argument there, right, that, that it is so strong that there are people who will say that, you know, that in order to interpret and understand this passage, I'll, I'll understand it as, I, Lord, don't let me fall into this temptation, right? And I would argue that that is, that is sometimes true. Um, God, steer me away from where I would take myself. Yeah. Yes. I have a question about the alternative interpretation, especially around this, where this temptation is coming from. I read it somewhere, and I've searched a little, but I haven't tried lately, that there's a scripture that says, you know, if you're struggling or being tempted, these are not the exact words, that um, if you know you haven't done anything wrong when you're having this struggle or whatever, have confidence or peace in that that some of this is either a part of life or the nature of the game that you're going to experience, for lack of a better word, I'll say conflict or struggle, and that sometimes it's not anything that you've done as much as it is, that's just what it is, and endure to the end. And that's why I think we're saying that there are so many interpretations, right? And right, we always say in Bible study, right, we're never giving you the answers, right? We're lifting up things that may lead us into further questioning, right? Um, most of us know, and the reason why we lift these up is because on some level, in different times in our lives, we can relate to all of them, right? There are some times where it's, um, yeah, I know my, person, my personal desires and choices led me into this. Other times where it's like, God, what in the world, right? Or sometimes I see God clearly in it. Right, that depending on my vantage point and depending on the type of suffering and pain that I'm going through, I'm going to view this differently, right? And so we're opening all of these doors and these windows so we can get kind of this uh, larger understanding of what we're dealing with. And so there's multiple interpretations that kind of mess our understanding of lead us not into temptation. And then we add the second clause that makes it kind of even muddier, right? So we're already kind of unsure about the lead us not into temptation, then Matthew goes on to say, but rescue us from the evil one, but deliver us from evil. We have this second clause here. Um, we note that the second clause does not appear in Luke's version. That's why when you open up Luke's prayer and you read it, there's a lot less uh, material there. And so some of us are like, well, what in the world's going on with Luke? But we see this just in Matthew. Um, do you mind going to the mic for me? Thank you for that, sir. Thank you for that suggestion. <laughs> Thank you for that suggestion. We wish we had it in the mic. We may get it later another time with the mic. Um, but really quickly, so let's look at Matthew, right, in these two clauses that we have, right, because it's important to our understanding. Do not bring us into the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. Um, so first we have that but, right, this, this conjunction in there, right? So it could simply, some people would argue that it kind of simply paraphrases the, paraphrases the clause that was negated, right? So it's just emphasizing, do not, bring us, do not bring us into but lead us away. But then there's another level of understanding that says that the trial could lead to this type of catastrophe that should not be attributed to God, 
right? So if God leads us into temptation, and in temptation we face this catastrophe, right, that is really extremely devastating, um, that God is, that even in that, God has the potential and the ability to deliver us from this evil, right? Um, so that's kind of one of the arguments that we see under understanding the conjunction. Um, in order to understand and, um, and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil, we've got to talk a little bit about evil and the different ways that evil shows up. Right, that there are multiple manifestations of evil. This is always important for us to keep in mind. Yes, there is the individual act. That's what we oftentimes think of first when we think about evil. Right, um, That if I pulled out a knife and stabbed someone, there's this individual um, immoral desire or harmful deed, Right, these individual acts of evil. But evil doesn't just show up in individual acts. Evil shows up in systems and powers. Right? We, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, spiritual wickedness in high places, right? Um, yeah, some of y'all thinking about that, right? Election year, right? Um, evil exists in systems and powers, right? And white supremacy, right? We just had Martin Luther King Day, right? What did Martin Luther King used to say all the time? The three evils of racism, militarism, and capitalism, right? That in the way in which these systems oppress and harm and dehumanize people, right? That that is evil, right, manifesting itself. Um, and then I would also say that evil shows up in the way in which we turn a blind eye to something, yep, yep. right? So that evil is not just me doing a bad thing. Evil is also me allowing a bad thing to happen, yep. right? So that when our legislators continue to allow gun violence to proliferate to the point that we become numb to it, right, that that is turning a blind eye. That's allowing evil to happen, Right, in a bad way, right? That if we're in a church, right, and, and we allow sexual abuse or demonic activity to take place in it, right, without calling it out, right, then that is evil, that is demonic, right? So evil shows up in multiple ways, and oftentimes the ways in which this evil manifests is they're intertwined, right? So there are connections between um, these different things. So when we pray, deliver us from evil, we're praying for deliverance from all of that the individual act and deed, the systems and powers, right, and our, our weakness of turning a blind eye, of saying it's okay as long as we keep this out of view, right? Um, and so that's why I would argue, so sometimes you all notice when we put the scripture up there on the board earlier, you notice deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. There's sometimes that depending on how people choose to translate the Greek, you see them translated both ways. Um, that kind of is disputed and I'm not too concerned there. Um, what I would argue, um, my theological anthropology would argue that we are inherently good but it is evil that does corrode our hearts, right, and builds up into our systems. Right, so that whether it's the evil one or evil itself, somehow, some way, those of us who are inherently good and created in God's image, evil gets into us and begins to corrupt and corrode us and corrode our lives. Um, so that's why I would argue that we're called to kind of simultaneously combat the evil without and the evil within, right? That they mirror each other, right? That when we come into this world, we could begin to be infected by the influences around us. Um, I preached one time some years back, I, I really said that this kind of season that we're in politically, um, yes, it is time for us to build up our capability of resistance, but it's also time for us to have a mirror moment, yeah. right? So that when we see the president's foolishness, right, yes, we will try to work to get him out of office, but we will also work to get that foolishness up out of us, right, in whatever little way that it shows up, right? So, right, all of our little childish behaviors, right, how do we get that up out of our system, right? Our sexism and misogyny, if we see it in him, right, that should convict us, how do I get it out of me, right? That we are working to get rid of the evil without and the evil within, 
because it doesn't just exist in one place. Right? Um, so deliver us from evil. Um, sometimes our greatest enemy is our inner me. Remember that saying, right, we used to say in church? Right? Sometimes our greatest enemy is our inner me. How do I get it out of me while I also resist it out here in the world? Yeah. Right? That I'm called to do both things. Um, <laughs> thank you, Vita. Thank you for reminding me to save my work for next time. <laughs> Bless you, bless you. So I want to really quickly look at, we just got a few minutes left. Um, there's a scholar I've been looking at in this Lord's Prayer series, um, C. Clifton Black. Um, he mirrors the temptations that we see in Matthew chapter 4 um, with how they show up in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 and these three ways that evil can disrupt our lives, right? So we go back to those temptations Jesus faces in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4 and we look at understanding how that, that call, those call us to kind of also resist evil in our own lives. So the first one that he looks at is the temptation of despair. Um, so that's the temptation. The first one, remember, you all know, um, Satan says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, Command these stones to become loaves of bread, right? Make your own miracle happen. Provide for yourself. This is the temptation to kind of allow our natural desires to drive our decision making. Mm. Jesus is hungry. He's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. The first thing he would want is some bread, right? That would make a world of difference. Um, and so Satan gives him the temptation to take care of yourself and fulfill whatever natural desire or craving you have. How many of us have been there, right? We've got a desire, I've got a craving, I wanna fix it immediately, right? That could be anything from just having a sweet tooth to a really bad addiction that we you know, we know we're dealing with and wrestling with, right? How do I just take care of my needs, right? Evil seeks to convince us that we have this one route to obtaining pleasure, mm. right? That's the trick of evil, right? That if I, if I have pleasure, if I, that if I'm seeking pleasure, if I have a need that I'm craving to be fulfilled, that the easiest way to fix it, right, is to just take that one easy route there. And God says, no, when you resist evil, you may not get that pleasure immediately fulfilled, but you find a different route, and that route leads you to joy. Yeah. Right? So that whenever I'm facing this difficult choice, right, I have these two options. I have route to my fulfillment, and there's a route that gets me to joy. There's a route that gives me to pleasure, and there's a route that gives me to joy and peace, right? Um, and we end up in these moments and these feelings of despair, right? Clifton Black argues when we say there's only one route of way to get into happiness, mm. right? When evil tricks us into thinking that there's only one way to be satisfied. And God says, no, you always have another option. You always have another road, and that road leads to joy. The second one is this idea of displacement. So that second temptation, Satan says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, right? So um, for those of you who don't remember the story, right, Satan takes Jesus up to this very high place, right? And he says, if you're the son of God, you can jump off this building and you won't get hurt, right? Because God will command God's angels, right, to, to, kept, uh, to lift you up, right? And you will not crush your foot against a stone, right? But Satan quotes scripture in this instance. Um, this is the temptation to rely on our own power, that's, what, that's how that mirrors in our lives, right? Whenever we feel like, hey, I can do this all by myself, rely on my own power, the evil persuades us to turn from dependence to God, dependence on God, and to our own self-reliance. So it's no longer God help me with this, but I can handle this. I can pull my own self up by my own bootstraps, right? I, I can do all things by my own might and my own capability. When the power of prayer is saying, God, I, admitting God, I can't do this, 
and I can't accomplish or succeed without you helping me in this instance, right? So that the way evil shows up is when it displaces God and then lifts us up to thinking that we can do it on our own, right? I need God to get me through this. That's when my prayer life is at its best. No, 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 I'm not, I'm not letting evil thoughts blow my head up and my ego up to think that I can accomplish all this on my own, right? God, you can make me, help me get through this. So despair, displacement, and then the last one is denial. When Satan shows Jesus all these different kingdoms of the world, right, and he says, all of these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, the last temptation is the weird one, right? It doesn't make any sense to those of us who read it because we know Satan and no kingdoms that belong to you. you. You can't give the whole world, right? This belongs to God, right? This, this is what belongs to God, right? He's the one who, who owns um, all of this. And so this last temptation um, is really denying, right, the fact that God owns it. That's why we call it denial, Right? What we have, what, what we want and desire really belongs in the hands of God. And so this reminds us, this temptation reminds us that evil often doesn't make sense. Right? It's irrational. Right? And sometimes the worst temptations we come up with are those ones that, that don't make sense, right? And we're, so we're, we're trying to make logic out of it. We're trying to think through this, right? And we get ourselves stressed out and caught up, right? Because we're trying to make sense of something that is never supposed to make sense in the first place, right? That one of the greatest tools of the enemy is confusion, yeah. right? To make you begin to wrestle with thoughts that don't even make sense, right? And, and you're spending your time trying to run all these ideas through your mind, and God's like, that. don't worry about that, yeah. right? All right. So this is all these temptations, all three of these temptations come in Matthew chapter 4, 1 through 11, right? So go home and read that story tonight um, and read that in parallel with the pray, Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Um, and we'll begin, those temptations will begin to illuminate what it really means when um, we hear, Lord, deliver us from evil. Despair, this idea that thinking we only have one route to joy and to pleasure, Right, and then displacement, thinking that we can remove depending on God and depend on ourselves, and then denial, right, thinking that trying to make sense out of the evil that doesn't really make sense in, in our lives. And so really, when you think about putting all those together, the beauty of this prayer reminds us that even when I fail to resist evil, God still has the power to deliver me, Amen. right? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Um, even when I am caught up in the influences of evil, right? God still has the power to get me out of it, right? This is one of my favorite illustrations of Pastor Wesley. Uh, you know, he says, have you ever been on your way to a good sin, right? You were in route, and then what's your mom or your grandma calls your cell phone, right? And, and then you feel convicted, right? It's that even when we are in route to doing something that we know is counter to God's will, God still has a way of pulling and rescuing us up out of that, right? That that is really kind of the, the beauty of the Lord's Prayer. Um, yes, do I have a question before I finish up? Yep. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I just wanna say that um, I love the Lord's Prayer and I, I like how you all have given the literary context of the prayer, but I just wanna say um, as an intercessor the application, I want to talk about the application of the prayer. 
that you could literally say this prayer all week. If you break down each of those lines, our Father who art in heaven, that hallowed be thy name, that you could just go through the whole day, the next two days, the whole week, just giving God his praise and hallowing or honoring his name. And then when you go to the next line, um, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. You pray God's will, go to his word and uh, repeat back what his mission is, what his purpose is and how we fit into that. You can pray that for another couple of days and on and on that um, that's how you can apply this prayer. Yeah, thank, thank you for that reminder, right? So, so we leave here, right, under this, understand, under this understanding that yes, we are, we have gone over this prayer, right, so that we have this better understanding of it, and then now we have this way to apply it to our life. Um, and then finally, I, I would just always offer that, I always kind of stand in the confidence of that reminder in Psalm 62, that power belongs to God, right? That whenever we're thinking of lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, I was thinking back in my mind that power belongs to God. That power does not belong to evil. That in this world we are sometimes driven to think or to view evil as being so much more powerful than evil really is. When the Bible says power belongs to God. Right? Um, I'm, one of my mentors in ministry always said that evil, the only way that it's powerful is that it's suggestive in its influences. Mm. Right? that evil doesn't really have any power to really accomplish anything, but it can influence us to do things that we know we shouldn't be doing, all right? That real power, ultimate power belongs to God um, and that we wrestle against these influences um, that evil attempts to dissuade us with. Um, so we've talked about resisting evil. Um, then lastly, we, um, just a quick note about this doxology that you don't see in your scripture, but you hear whenever we pray the Lord's Prayer, right? You hear, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for what? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, right? So that doxology, um, it comes out of tradition, right? So we understand that the reason why that showed up in so many early church traditions um, is because they did not have the original Greek manuscripts that we have now, right? And so that's why you, when you're looking for your book and you don't see that there, you're wondering where did that come from. Um, lots of people attribute it to um, 1 Chronicles 29. Um, we do hear a similar passage. Um, that David blessed the Lord in the presence of this assembly and says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, and the victory forever, amen. Um, many people think that that's where it's come from in David's final speech right before Solomon is anointed as king. Um, but the important part is just to know, understand that, that doxology comes out of that tradition and that it's, it's definitely fine and applicable for us to use, as, as, our, as our friend said here. Um, this prayer is not just something that we read in Scripture to understand, but it's something that we recite in our hearts and something that convicts and compels us in our lives going forward. Um, at the end of the day, what do we know? We know that we've concluded this series on prayer, and I think prayer just reminds us overall, right, from an umbrella view, that I need God, right, that God has all power, and that God loves me as God's child, that I need God, and God has all power, and God loves me as God's child, right? So if, if you lost anything in those interpretations and the parismo and the parazo, right, that you, you can take this home for sure, that I need God, God has all power, and God loves me as God's child. I need God, God, God has all power, God loves me as God's child. That, that rotation keeps repeating, and then in that rotation, I'm reminded that God's got this. 
hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. I'm your child, you love me. Lead us not into temptation, you have all power. I'm delivered, right? Amen. Amen. All right, let's get ready to go. We've used up all of our time. Thank you all so much for continuing to be a part of our Bible study. As I said, for those of you who arrived late next week, we will begin our preparation for the Seek 2020 fast. This year we're going to be fasting all through the month of March, 31 days, 31 days, yes, yes. Last year was 21 days, this year you're gonna step it up a little bit. Pray for your neighbor on your left and your right, amen. We'll get ready to dismiss, let's join hands for a word of prayer. As I asked you all earlier, um, really feel it important tonight, as it always is, to lift up in prayer those amongst our church family who are grieving the loss of loved ones this week. Um, for Theron Johnson, for Liz Denike, and for so many others, um, we want to especially cover them in prayer. Um, and I invite you in this time and space to speak aloud those names of those who we're praying for who are grieving or are sick and shut in this time. Let's speak those names aloud. God, we look to you in moments where we don't know where to look and turn. We look to you because you are where our help comes from. When we are broken, when we are bruised, when we are hurting, when we are confused and worried, God, you are the one who reminds us that you've got the whole world in your hands and that you ordained our lives from the very beginning that you are watching us each and every day of our lives, that you will see us to the very end. Thank you for being God. In these moments when we struggle to trust you, open our ears a little bit wider, open our hearts, God, to receive what we need to receive and allow us to brush off our shoulders all of the weight and the worry that we don't need to consume us. God, help us to believe that we are powerful, adaptable, and unshakable. Help us to remember that we can do all things, not through our own strength, but through Christ who strengthens us. So God, allow the beauty of this prayer to still within our hearts. Remind us, oh God, that there is no evil that you do not have power over. That there is no force that is too great for you to conquer. We serve a risen Savior. And we walk into all that lies ahead this week with that confidence. So God, when we see foolishness happening on the news, we remember that we serve a risen Savior. When we receive a negative doctor's report, we remember that we serve a risen Savior. When we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, yes, we miss our loved ones, but we're reminded that we'll be reunited with them one day because we serve a risen Savior. God, we believe that you are going to protect us on our way home tonight because we serve a risen Savior. So God, we thank you for what is already done and handled and accomplished. We trust you now. We surrender this night to you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Go in grace and peace to serve the Lord. Have a good night, everyone.